Everybody I know wants a simpler tax process, so why isn't it happening? I was wondering if you could explain inflation to me. Is America's rising income and wealth disparity the causative force or derivative outcome of inequality along the lines of race and gender? Can you please help convince me and the rest of your listeners that there is hope and we are not all doomed? I guess I'm asking for a little education. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Hey, everybody. Uh, on this week's episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to continue with fantastic uh, listener questions in our AMA Ask Me Anything episode. If you didn't listen to the first episode of questions, go back and listen to that. Uh, but with that, Goldie, let's get to this week's uh, questions. Yay! You know how much I love to answer questions, Nick. <laughs> yes. Hi, Nick and everybody. This is Mark from Nashville, Tennessee. My question is this, is America's rising income and wealth disparity the causative force or derivative outcome of inequality along the lines of race and gender? Now this could be seen as a chicken and egg question, and it may be, but I'm convinced our ruling plutocrats have been very masterful in obscuring divisive economic policies that, that ensure their ascendancy by pitting the middle and working class against itself. Thank you so much. Love your show. So I think the answer, Mark, and it, it's not a simple one, is that you're describing a vicious cycle, uh, that uh, rising uh, income and wealth inequality creates greater inequalities across lines of race and gender, and rising inequality across race and gender creates uh, rising income and wealth disparity broadly. You know, Nick, we talk about how the a good economy is a virtuous cycle. What we've seen uh, over the past four decades has been this vicious circle. Yeah, and it's a really interesting and complicated question and probably could talk about it for hours. What pops into my head, Goldie, is so one of the things that rising inequality does is it shreds the reciprocity norms that mm -hmm. make social cohesion possible. And increases racism and sexism, right? People who are stressed, feeling left behind, uh, feeling bullied and taking advantage of, look for enemies. They need to find someone to blame. And uh, for sure, one of the very crafty things that you know the neoliberals did is that they did turn working people against one another. Black working people against white working people. Uh, they they looked at one another to blame rather than looking up and, and recognizing that that both groups were being taken advantage of by a small, I mean to be fair, mostly white economic elite. I, I do think that the vicious cycle versus uh, virtuous cycle uh, metaphor that you're using, Goldie, is the right one because in a world where Everybody is doing better. Uh, you have, of course, less 
uh, resentment, you have less racism, you have less sexism, and 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 certainly as you eliminate inequality, you know the differences between these groups converges too, in a you know which benefits everybody. By the way, it's a really interesting question, very complicated, and you know probably one that we can't completely answer in a quick snippet like this. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you, Nick, is that Marx was right. Um, we need a little class consciousness. Workers of the world unite in all that yeah, instead of being 100%. divided. By, instead of being divided by you plutocrats. A hundred percent. Hello, Nick, and everyone at Civic Ventures. Quick question: My name is David Baldwin. I live in Japan. Uh, why is the tax system not simplified? That was one Trump campaign promise that I actually liked. Now I live in Japan. My friends and I were discussing this. Each of us has lived in either Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore. We all now live in Japan. And each country has a much simpler tax system. My Canadian friends simply need to declare they're currently living outside of Canada, and they don't have to file. But me, in the meantime, I have to pay taxes in the United States, file every year, and hire an accountant to organize it for me. Everybody I know wants a simpler tax process, so why isn't it happening? Thanks, guys. Love the show. There's a giant industry that sucks off of this complexity, right? It, right. it just it, so rich people love the complexity because complexity makes it easy to hide and evade the rules. Uh, and the accounting and legal professions love the complexity because they. Because people uh, pay them to do their taxes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, it just. Yeah. It just it would be so easy to make it simpler, uh, and if you made it simpler, uh, it would be it would benefit everyone except for those interest groups that have a lot of power. And you know, it's just it's so unfortunate. So let's be clear: uh, only twenty five percent of filers itemize. For everybody else, for seventy five percent of tax filers, there's no reason for them to do their own taxes. the The IRS should be doing it for them and could be doing it for them. The IRS knows how much you've earned. They have your W twos. They have your ten ninety nines, and they could do your taxes for you and either send you a bill or send you a check. And a lot of other countries work that way. The U.S. could work that way. But the tax preparation industry has conspired with Republicans to prevent it. And the reason why Republicans oppose it is because they want you to hate doing taxes. They want it to be a burden because they're anti-tax. The truth is, the, you know, when they talk about a simpler tax system, they talk about you know, a flat tax, eliminating the brackets. That's not the complicated part of the tax system. It's all of the credits and deductions and exemptions and loopholes, which are mostly put in there uh, for people like you, Nick, not for uh, people like me. Uh, and if you ask me, and I've, I am orthodox about this, I am a fanatic on this, I think we should eliminate absolutely every single uh, uh, tax deduction and exemption, uh, everything but the standard deduction. That means no home mortgage interest deduction. None of the deductions and credits that make your tax form uh, complicated. And just to a straight up, you can have as many brackets as you want, but just straight up, this is how much I earned, multiply it by this amount, that's how much you pay. It's easy, but we don't do it yeah. again, politics. And I should also add for all of you folks out there who are 
are not itemizing, who don't have complicated tax firms, who are still paying people to do your own taxes, stop. There's a lot of free services out there, free software out there that the vast majority of American taxpayers qualify for. Go online, Google it. I've never paid anybody to do my own taxes, and I do itemize because I'm a homeowner. Hi, my name is Mike Davis. I'm calling uh, from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The reason I'm calling is um, I'm looking for a little bit of clarification. I guess I've always embraced a more conservative economic viewpoint, and I'm, I'm surprised by the term neoliberal associated with people who I always thought were conservative. So I guess I'm asking for a little education on conservative versus neoliberal, that kind of thing. Thanks for what you're doing, for making me rethink my world. So, Mike, you ask a spectacularly good question, um, and uh, sadly, the terms that we use to describe these things are both complicated and somewhat indefensible. Um, conservative economics has largely been what we now call neoliberal, uh, and there's a whole historical uh, account that explains how we ended up calling these folks neoliberal. And it started in the 60s and 70s and included people like Alan Greenspan and Milton Friedman and others. Uh, but another term of art that it may be easier to use and more descriptive is market fundamentalism, which is the idea that the only institution in the whole wide world that matters is markets. And they're perfectly efficient and perfectly just, and you just let them leave them alone and everything good will happen and you don't have to really worry about anything else. You don't have to worry about justice. You don't have to worry about climate change. You don't have to worry about inequality. It, the market will magically sort all this out, uh, creating just and efficient outcomes for everyone. Uh, and that is largely the neoliberal view too, but neoliberalism is just a a, a more complicated and nuanced term of art. The important thing to remember, Mike, is that the the liberal, the term liberal in neoliberal is not liberal in the American context. It's liberal in the way, that it, more of the European context. In America, we could we consider that more libertarian. So neoliberal, these are the new liberals, liberals as in the 19th century idea of liberals, which is that laissez-faire, uh, libertarian perspective, leave the market alone to do what it does. Um, yeah. And so it's it's confusing in America. It makes more sense everywhere else in the world where the liberal party is the laissez-faire party. It, it's, it's different. And I'd also add, I don't know that there is a conservative economics anymore, not in the true sense of the word conservatism. I think that the modern neoliberal economics is very radical. It's it's radical libertarianism. It's not conservative by any traditional sense of the imagination. And a friend of the podcast, Oren Cass, who is a true conservative, has been yeah. uh, arguing quite loudly for redefining and reviving conservative economics. And uh, you'd be surprised to know that there's some overlap between his conservative economics and our progressive economics, our middle out economics. Uh, it, yeah. it, it turns out when you're actually basing it on sound economic theory instead of on this 
extreme radical laissez-faire ideology, we end up at the same policy conclusion, even if we're coming at it from different perspectives. Yeah. I mean, for example, the you know, true conservative economics cares deeply about the family, which conservatives believe is sort of the most important part of uh, a successful society is a, is a high functioning family. Well, you just can't have high functioning families if they're poverty stricken and in crisis. <laughs> and, um, you know, and so that very much, that idea very much animates how true conservatives are starting to think about economics rather than just this sort of naked making right. rich people richer. And so, you know, to show how confusing this all is, Mike, uh, for the past four decades, both political parties have been neoliberal parties. There's no question that the Democratic yeah. Party is the left-leaning party and the Republican Party yeah. was the right-leaning party. You know, traditionally Democrat center left, Republican center right, but they were both wholly and truly to the bone neoliberal in economic terms. That's the way how they understood the world work, that you wanted to have as little government as possible interfering in the economic realm. And you wanted to uh, let the market do its magic. And the big difference was whether the government had a responsibility or the right to ameliorate the inequality created by the system. And Some the of the pain. Right. Right. Uh, and to fix the market failures. And that was the real difference between the two. How, how much do we step in to fix the things that inevitably go wrong? But the policies mostly were the same. And, and now yeah. w what you see with the modern Democratic Party and with the Biden administration, thankfully, is uh, an abandonment of the, these old uh, neoliberal orthodoxies and a return to a more empirically based economics that looks at the way the economy really works. Hi, this is Mary Osgood from Massachusetts. I regret that I never took an economics course in college. So I was wondering if you could explain inflation to me. If it occurs when unemployment is low and people are paid higher wages, why is that so bad? Aren't people now in a better position to buy things despite those higher prices? Thank you. I'll be listening for your answer. Well, well, first of all, Mary, I want to assure you, you should not regret <laughs> never taking an economics course in college. I didn't take an economics course in college. Did you, Nick? Uh, I, I, it was the only course in college that I dropped um, <laughs> because I, you know, I got about a quarter of the way into it. And, they, and I was just I grew up in a family business and I was like, this has nothing to do with reality. Like these people, I don't know what these people are talking about, but they're not talking about planet Earth. <laughs> right. I, I, I scanned the textbook first and decided not to take the course. Um, yeah. So had you taken economics, uh, you would have been totally misled uh, because yeah. they would have they, they would have taught you that that econ 101 bullshit that we've been fighting for so long on this podcast. So feel good about yourself, Mary. You made the right choice. As for inflation, uh, what do you think, Nick? Is it is it still true? The Phillips curve is uh, when yeah. when uh, employment uh, when unemployment goes down, does inflation go up? Yeah. So a the answer to that is almost certainly not. So inflation, of course, is when things start to cost more, and because a human economy is largely a psychological construct, the economy really is sort of the perceptions that we hold in our heads. Inflation mostly is a product of 
uh, how we are feeling about the future. And uh, and hyperinflation is a thing that has occurred in the past and can be quite a destructive thing. Hyperinflation being when prices absolutely go crazy and currency effectively loses its value. Uh, this is not something that has ever happened in the United States of America, or at least not to my knowledge, at least not in the last hundred years. Although in the 70s, we did have uh, a lot of inflation that was driven by the oil shock and a bunch of other things. But as our friend Austin Goolsby, the former head of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, explained to us on a recent podcast, the current circumstances are nothing like what created that inflation shock of the 70s. So are things likely to cost a little bit more if the economy overheats? Yes. Uh, if wages go up, does that create inflation? Maybe a little bit. Is that bad? Absolutely not. No, um, you know, like if you if you raise the minimum wage from seven twenty five an hour to twenty dollars an hour, will that fold into prices for products long term? Absolutely. Will things cost a little bit more? Absolutely. But will they cost three hundred percent more for the people who just went from seven dollars to twenty dollars an hour? Not hardly. So if you all of a sudden have a 300% increase in your annual wages and products cost 5% more or 7% more, that is a spectacular trade. That is the kind of economy we want. We want to have a high wage, high cost economy. That's what an advanced economy is. And so we absolutely want to drive wages higher. And if it creates a little bit of inflation, well, then so be it. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's that that would be a good thing, net net for the vast majority of people. Oh, I want to also mention that, you know, inflation is the thing that most people have used to create wealth in their lives. So if you buy a house for whatever it was, you know, everybody has a story about this, their parents buying a house for $30,000 or $50,000, which seemed like a lot of money at the time. And they borrowed $30,000 or $40,000, which seemed like a lot of money at the time. Well, if there's wage inflation, you get to use those higher wages to pay down that former debt, which is, which is fixed. And so 20 years later, you may be earning three times as much money and paying down a loan that at that point seems very, very cheap and your wealth has expanded dramatically. And so for most workers, a little bit of inflation, wage inflation for sure is a good thing. It's also, and you raise this with uh, talking about this generational thing, It's it, there's a certain amount of generational warfare in this war on inflation, that it turns out yes. that low inflation is good for people with assets and higher inflation is good for people with debts because yes. the, the money you're 100%. paying to pay off your debt is worth less than the money you borrowed. Uh, That's and right. So we so have- Rich people prefer no inflation. Right. Because they have lots of assets and, and people exactly. who have lots of student debt and, and a big mortgage, they would benefit from a little inflation as long as their wages were keeping up because it eats That's away right. the real value of their debt quicker than their payments do. Correct. Hey, Nick and Bitchwork Economics. This is Steve calling from Austin. And I got really excited um, listening back through the history of your podcast. And so I'm back in 2019 listening to podcasts about um, – the minimum wage and how it should be decided or, uh, or leveled. And one of the ideas that has come up frequently uh, that you, Nick, seem to be excited about is 
um, attaching minimum wage to the size of a company because large companies in small rural towns like Walmart or others can afford large, higher wages. Uh, certainly, um, they can afford more than perhaps the local small businesses can. Um, I got excited about the idea, but then when I shared it with my wife, um, her response was, won't Walmart, if they're paying the highest wages in a particular area or whatever large company is paying the highest wages in a particular area, won't that company tend to get the cream of the crop when it comes to employees? You know, a good employee would much rather go to Walmart where they're paying 20 to $25 an hour as opposed to working at a local store that may be doing more for the local economy but only is able to pay 15 or so dollars an hour. So I wonder what your thought is about where the talent goes when minimum wages are staggered between large and small companies, especially in small towns. Thanks for your time. Love your podcast. Hope you guys uh, are having a great day and uh, look forward to hearing a response soon. Yeah. So, Steve, that's a terrific question. And uh, the policy idea that you raise, uh, scaling the minimum wage to the size of business rather than the geography is something, uh, is an idea that we are in love with and presently calling countervailing wages. And, uh, you know, we feel strongly that one of the best ways to address uh, inequality in general, corporate concentration, and in particular, the ways in which non-urban places have fallen behind economically from urban sort of, you know, super growth cities is requiring the largest companies to pay the highest wages and having mid-tier companies pay a slightly lower wage and small businesses uh, paying an even lower wage. And we are absolutely convinced that by doing this, we would enormously um, impact the prosperity of most Americans. And yes, big companies would earn less, but that would be fine. And our present idea would be $25 minimum wage for the largest companies like Walmart and a $20 minimum wage for franchises and maybe a $15 minimum wage for uh, for small businesses. The issue you raise is a valid one, which is if you live in a small town and the Walmart's paying 25 and your own employer is a small business paying 15, wouldn't you rather go to the Walmart? And the answer almost certainly is yes. <laughs> you probably would <laughs> want to go to the Walmart. Um, <laughs> which does put pressure on that small business to raise wages too. But there are all sorts of reasons that people choose to work at an employer. And, you know, as a small employer, you have radically more flexibility to improve the working circumstances of somebody who, um, who, who you employ. More flexibility, you know, more responsibility, you, you know, just generally a funner, more enjoyable, more satisfying work work environment, getting to know the people that you work with in a deeper way, having a great relationship with uh, your boss, all sorts of other things go into where people choose to work. But no, you know, just to be clear, no economic system is perfect. There are always trade-offs. And by holding the largest companies uh, to the highest standard, you definitely will uh, you call it, give them an advantage in drawing the best talent, which is the way yeah. of the world. Yeah. So I'm going to appeal to some uh, pitchfork uh, economics orthodoxy here, Nick, and uh, remind you, Steve, that when workers have more money, businesses have more customers and hire more workers. And that means the small local businesses who are competing with the Walmart. So what we're talking about with the countervailing wage is something that will jumpstart that virtuous cycle we want. Suddenly, 
suddenly you're going to have all these better paying jobs within the community. Those people are going to be earning more and they're going to be spending more money in the community and not just at Walmart. They're going to be spending more money at these local businesses. And as these local businesses have more customers with more disposable income to spend, they will be able to afford to pay their own workers more money too. And in the end, that's what we want. We don't actually want one business to be paying $15 and another business paying $25 for the same job. We want them all to be able to afford to pay $25. But the truth is Walmart can afford to pay $25 an hour right now in every single community in this country. It might lower their profits a little bit. It might mean less dividends for their shareholders. It might mean fewer stock buybacks. It might mean a little less compensation for their CEO. It might not. It might not because their workers are going to be more productive at these higher wages, and so they'll be more profitable per store. But they can do it. It won't hurt them. They can afford it, and that will pump more money into the local economy. And, and I'll give you an analogy here. If in that same community, uh, Ford went in and said, we're going to open an auto plant, and we're going to pay everybody $25 an hour, would the local businesses say, oh, no, we don't want you to do that. You're going to attract away our employees. You're going to get all the good workers who will go for that higher wage than we're paying $7.25 an hour at the at the local grocery store. No, they're going to welcome that factory coming in because they know it's good for the local economy and ultimately that's good for them. So yes, Steve, will small, will small businesses eventually have to raise their wages to compete for talent? We sure hope so. <laughs> we sure hope so. But the good news is that once there's all that extra money in the local economy, they'll be able to afford it too. Hey, Nick, Goldie, and team. Uh, this is Pete from Boston. I'm an avid listener, follower, big fan. And just so you know, I push your podcast on everyone I know, uh, left, right, center. As an independent, I'm saddened and sometimes even disgusted by how many policymakers, pundits, so-called experts, and regular citizens uh, continue to repeat and advocate for neoliberal ideas while ignoring evidence to the contrary. And given that it doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon, can you please help convince me and the rest of your listeners that there is hope and we are not all doomed. And also, please tell us uh, the specific ways that we can be most effective at enacting change. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work. Well, Pete, first, uh, thanks for shilling for us. We do very much appreciate it. And honestly, I do think that there's hope. I really, I really do think that there's hope because, well, I mean, holy, holy cow, the, the Biden administration uh, has fully embraced, you know, basically the middle out alternative to neoliberal economic policy. And if they can do it, others can do it. And for sure, for the first time in 50 years, probably, the nation has had leadership from the top that has going right after these neoliberal mistakes and lies. The other thing is, is that the whole economics profession is slowly rotating. And you know, in 1980, 90% of economists believed that raising uh, the minimum wage would kill jobs. And today, probably only 10 or 20% of economists believe that. And those are the one, and all of those economists are effectively on the payrolls of big corporations and the Chamber of Commerce in one way, shape, or form. And so things are changing, sadly, slower than we'd prefer, but they are. And you know, I think we just have to keep putting the pressure on. We just can't let 
political leaders um, and policymakers get away with these things. And and just standing up and pushing back on them is, is a very important part of the process. Not letting people get away with these ridiculous, uh, you know, these ridiculous ideas and hiding behind things like, well, you just don't understand economics or, oh, you're just not serious or whatever it is. So I do think that there's hope and I do think uh, that change is coming and, um, you know, we're just going to have to push as hard as we can to make it happen. Yeah, I'd say, Pete, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, Push our podcast out on everybody, you know, left, right and center and be relentless and keep repeating the narrative. You know, a narrative is just a story. And the way you get a story to take hold is to repeat it over and over and over and over and over again. That's what the other side did to the point where the reason why they keep repeating these neoliberal ideas is because they've heard them so often. They believe that that is the conventional wisdom. But if we can repeat our narrative over and over again, it changes the conventional wisdom and you start bringing people over because people want to be with the winning team. Uh, but, But also because eventually it makes sense. A lot of what we talk about on this podcast makes just as much, if not more sense, intuitively as the neoliberal market fundamentalist paradigm. This idea, when we say, when the other side says, as they said for 40 years, that if you raise the cost of employment, uh, employers will buy less of it, right? You raise the minimum wage, it's going to reduce employment. And we say, no, when workers have more money, businesses have more customers and hire more workers. That's just a 180 degree flip. They both have an internal logic. It's just that we never heard our side before, and now we have. And people say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. They've been primed for it. So it's not just up to people like me and Nick. It's up to everybody listening to this podcast to spread the word. (laughs) You know, argue with people. Be assertive. Be confident. The empirical evidence is on our side. And try to bring as many people into this as you can. I I, I know. Does that make me sound like an evangelist, Nick? (laughs) You are an evangelist, Colby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to be clear, you know, we're not the only ones doing this work. Uh, th- this is happening across, both across the country and across the globe. Lots and lo- I mean, you know, like we're part of an increasingly loud chorus of folks who are pushing back against the neoliberal era. And and you know, our side is gaining momentum, and their side is losing ground. And, um, you know, we just have to keep pressing. Well, Goldie, uh, this was great fun. And I have to tell you, I think the questions are getting sharper and harder. Uh, <laughs> honestly, uh, we, we got really great questions. Uh, we're going to leave the uh, number in the show notes. If you have a question at any time, please leave us a message and hopefully we can get to it at some point in the future. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.